Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome. Uh, we've all been puzzling, I think, certainly since 2015 and 2016, but maybe before that, as to how, how did we get here? How did we wind up in a political situation that's so intractable and where the divisions seem to be getting worse all the time? So, I mean, you've got, there will, for example, there are fewer pro-life Democrats than there used to be and fewer pro-choice Republicans than there used to be. And you could take an awful lot of other uh, wedge issues and go kind of right down the line. There's just a, there are fewer liberal to moderate Republicans uh, than probably there ever were before. Um, and so what, what's going on here? And, and why, are the, why is there so little action that could be described as bipartisan? Well, Steve Kornacki has attempted to explore this uh, in his book, The Red and the Blue, the 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. He has explored everything from the origins of that particular color scheme, which is more recent than you might imagine and more arbitrary than you might imagine, to what lies behind it, the stories that lie behind it. I should say also Steve Kornacki is kind of a local guy. He's from around here, and uh, I had a chance to do a live forum with him a few months ago, and this book does uh, feature some cameos by people like Joe Lieberman, Lowell Weicker. I think Nancy Johnson's in there somewhere. Uh, so Steve Kornacki, welcome to our show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So you begin the book and end the book with Election Night 2000, not in the 90s, but the end of the 90s. Um, why is that the framing device for you? Why did that work? I, I think the, the election of 2000, which which results in the closest thing to a, a perfect tie we'd ever seen in American presidential election history, and we probably ever will see, um, I think all of the political battles and political wars of the 90s were kind of building to that. And I think what it left us with was a, um, a basic framework that has endured ever since, and that's the red states and the blue states, red America, blue America. Um, that map on election night 2000 with you know the South going entirely red, entirely Republican, um, including Al Gore's state, including Bill Clinton's state, um, you know the Northeast basically going entirely blue, Democratic, the Pacific Coast, um, just all of the, the the major divisions that we that we now take for granted in politics that are that are geographic, that are demographic, and that really are are cultural. I think they were expressed in that map. Um, and I think that map is, is the product of, of, of everything that happened in the 1990s. Um, I should say, I said you were a local boy. You're actually from Massachusetts, but we forgive that. Whole um, family's from Connecticut. Yeah, whole, yeah, that's yeah, what it is. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, let's talk about the 1990s. There are, are a number of very interesting and familiar characters within this book, but in a way, there's sort of, you know, a part of the meat of this book is this kind of Pacific Rim type, type you know, struggle between these two titans, Bill Clinton uh, and, and Newt Gingrich. Um, so let's take them one at, a, one at a time. But I think it makes sense to take Gingrich first, right, because he actually sees a paradigm shift that he, he can make, not so much in the 90s where we begin to see it, but way earlier than that. Right. I mean, Newt Gingrich changed American politics in the 1990s, but to be in position to do that, he had to complete a um, just a truly 
remarkable, stunning um, political rise. And, and it, uh, it takes him from the late 1970s um, when he's elected to Congress in, in 1978 from, from West Georgia. Um, he, he was on his third campaign for Congress. If he lost, he probably would have been a perennial candidate uh, out there in Georgia, and we never would have heard of him, um, if you can imagine that. But he got elected. And he comes to a Congress that um, already at that point people were calling the Permanent Democratic Congress. Um, Democrats back in those days, they didn't just have a majority constantly. They had massive majorities, you know, 80, 90, 100 seats. And uh, it had been that way when Gingrich got there for more than a generation, you know, since 1954. Um, And Gingrich told Republicans when he got to Washington in 1979, January 79, he said, "Um, I am going to lead you to the majority. And the Republicans kind of looked at him and said, all right, this guy's crazy. And, and they ignored him and they treated him like a gadfly. And um, he did not uh, walk into Congress with a big constituency. But he, he sort of worked um, almost this guerrilla campaign in, in the 1980s uh, on the floor of the House, in the hallways of, uh, of Congress, recruiting allies um, to a, a vision of politics that was – totally at odds with how the institution of, of Congress had functioned in the past. And, and it was based on the idea of, of maximum partisan warfare to create maximum contrast between the parties, um, to nationalize congressional elections, to nationalize all of politics. And, and what Gingrich really saw was he saw a Republican Party that, um, as, as hopeless as things seemed for them in, in, in Congress, they were winning presidential elections easily. You know, Richard Nixon won 49 states in 1972, and, and Reagan won landslides in 1980 and 1984, Bush Sr. in, in 1988. And, and the Gingrich theory was, was basically um, if we can make voters around the country see every Democrat in their backyard the way they see these Democratic presidential candidates, then this Republican Party will control everything in this country top to bottom, and, and we'll just we'll basically do away with the Democratic Party. And, and Gingrich felt that the way to do that was uh, you were not going to compromise your, your way to that, um, to that position. You were going to do it by just drawing deep, sharp, and clear lines between the two parties um, on everything. And, and it meant not compromising. It meant staging fights on the floor of the House. I mean, he does things like uh, he baits one Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, um, into, a, into a fight basically on the floor of the House, and he gets O'Neill reprimanded. Um, he takes another Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, in the late 1980s, and he leads uh, – Newt Gingrich leads like a one-man ethics campaign against Jim Wright and ultimately forces Jim Wright to resign from the House. It was the first time in history that the Speaker of the House had resigned um, over ethics violations. Um, these were major, momentous things in Washington, on Capitol Hill, in Congress, and, and just slowly – uh, his Republican colleagues who wouldn't give him the time of day when he got there started to, to, to look at him, started to look at the, the mail that was coming into their office, the phone calls that were coming into their offices, the, the voices they were hearing at their town hall meetings. Um, and it said, you know, this guy's onto something. Um, and, uh, and, and there's sort of the story of the 80s and into the early 90s is the Republicans in Congress become Gingrichized. And, and that puts them in position when, when Bill Clinton finally comes to office in, uh, in January 1993. You know, Bill Clinton faces a Republican opposition that, that, that looked and acted differently 
um, than, than anything a, a Democratic president had ever faced. You know, one of the differences I think that uh, Gingrich is largely responsible for is the shift between, and I, this isn't a gross generalization, but, but the politics that preceded him often, there, there might be some pretty stagey back and forth going on between uh, members of Congress in, in the press on television or, or even on the floor of either chamber. But that was often replaced by a lot of camaraderie and an ability to sit and meet in committees of correspondence, uh, the ability to talk and be friends. I've even been told that when uh, Tip O'Neill and some of his lieutenants would meet, would meet with Reagan, when after Reagan would leave, or when they would leave Reagan, I guess, uh, O'Neill would go, you know, he's the nicest guy in the world. He's dumb as a box of rocks, but he's a nice guy. <laughs> you know, and there was sort of that idea. And, and what Gingrich basically said is, nope, we got to mean it. It can't just be for show. This, the, we, when we take out the knives, we actually have to mean it. And in a way, I think you make a pretty compelling case that that begins a slide toward a different style of politics. It, it's a populist style of politics, and the media and the evolution of media and the just explosion of, of mass media that coincides with all of this is, is a big part of it, because because part of what you're describing with Gingrich and part of what he understood is that with, uh, for instance, uh, in, in 1979, they put cameras in the House of Representatives for the first time, and they air everything on C-SPAN. Um, you know, people start getting cable television by the millions around this time, and then everybody's getting this channel called C-SPAN, and they're watching it. And, and CNN comes along in 1980 for the first time. You have cable news, and, and they're covering this stuff, and, and people like Newt Gingrich are getting on CNN. And Gingrich recognized that, that what he was trying to, to sort of stir and, and trying to foment was was a, a, a populist backlash against the Democrats. And, and that message, the, the ability to stir that populist backlash, you wouldn't be able to do that um, if voters saw you palling around with Tip O'Neill and the Democrats. You couldn't be Tip O'Neill's golfing buddy. You couldn't play poker with him after hours. You couldn't you know, put your arm around him and tell a story. Um, you had to you had to look the part, and, and the part was you were outraged by this corrupt Democrat machine, and and you, you had to you had to be showing that in in your actions constantly. Yeah, you you mentioned C-SPAN. C-SPAN is sort of uh, Gingrich's version of Trump's Twitter. It's a, yeah. an, an unmediated version of media that you can you can just use and have access to. You don't have to get through a Booker. You don't have to deal with Jake Tapper once you're on the air. You just basically can can kind of say your piece. Well, so meanwhile, Steve, we've got the Democrats, and the Democrats start to realize that there's something going on really earlier than the ascension of uh, Clinton. One of the reasons they formed the DLC, which is this new movement of more conservative centrist Democrats, it includes Bill Clinton, it includes Joe Lieberman, is that they realize that the liberal politics that they've that have defined them. And as, as long as we're talking about the liberal politics that have defined them, um, let's take a quick look back to the to, to Mario Cuomo, because he's one of the people who clearly fascinates you in this book. Uh, let's Let's hear a little bit of that famous speech from the 1980s at the Democratic National Convention. Ever since Franklin Roosevelt lifted himself from his wheelchair to lift this nation from its knees, wagon train after wagon train to new frontiers of education, housing, peace, the whole family aboard, constantly reaching out to extend and enlarge that family, lifting them up into the wagon on the way, blacks and Hispanics and people of every ethnic group and Native Americans, all those struggling to build their families and claim some small share of America. We Democrats must unite. We Democrats must unite so that the entire nation can unite, because surely the Republicans won't bring this country together. Their policies divide the nation into the lucky and the left out, into the royalty and the rabble. 
The Republicans are willing to treat that division as victory. They would cut this nation in half. So, you know, Stephen Away in the 1980s, that was still a pretty perfectly defining voice of what, you know, I mean, obviously the Democratic Party was a spectrum, it was a continuum, but that was a pretty perfect summation that really resonated, too, with a convention audience for what Democratic politics were all about. Yeah, I mean, Mario Cuomo at the, at the 1984 Democratic Convention right there. And, and um, it's for people who don't remember it or, or have forgotten, I, what I always liken that speech to, and you, you get a little taste of it right there, you know, what an order Mario Cuomo was. It had the same effect in the moment, um, at least, that Barack Obama's speech at the, at the 2004 Democratic Convention had, where it was just this moment where everybody in the hall came to attention and, and found themselves mesmerized. Um, and, of course, in Obama's case, he ended up riding it all the way to the presidency. The, the story with Cuomo um, was that from that moment on, um, for the next, really the next seven years, um, he had Democrats begging him to run for president. Um, and in hearing him deliver that message, and, and they felt they were getting wiped out. You know, Carter got wiped out in 1980, and, and Mondale got wiped out in 1984. Then Dukakis would get wiped out in 1988. And there was this, there was this sense among a lot of liberals um, who were absorbing these defeats, thinking, well, you know, this is what we've been missing. Our own great communicator, you know, Ronald Reagan was the great communicator for Republicans and, and conservative values. Well, here, Mario Cuomo, the great communicator um, of New Deal and, and great society values. And if we could just get him to run for president, that's how we find our way back. And, and so there was a strong impulse in the Democratic Party to go that way. And the counter to that, of course, was what you were describing, too, the, the, um, the DLC, the moderates, the centrists, even the conservatives, predominantly from the South, who around the same time, you know, looked up and said, well, you know, Democratic Party's doing terribly everywhere in presidential elections, but they're, they're, they're doing worse in the South than anywhere else. We need a, a, a more moderate and, and more Southern voice um, in this party. And of course, you know, the South in the old days, it was, it was just starting to transition at this point, had been a Democratic bastion. So there was this school of thought that, you know, the future for the Democratic Party would be, you know, to, to go back to those roots and win back the South. And, and that was the tension. Do you, do you go in the Cuomo direction? Do you go for the, the sort of liberal idealist who can sell it? Uh, do you double down on the New Deal, basically? Or do you, do you go in that DLC direction? And that was Clinton versus Cuomo. And I just think it's a huge, it was this unofficial um, fight that never became a full-fledged race. It almost did. It, it, it built and it built and it built to the eve of the 1992 campaign when, when Bill Clinton is running for president and Mario Cuomo is flirting with it and the entire political world stands still as Cuomo tries to make up his mind and it's the filing deadline for the New Hampshire primary uh, and Cuomo's got this plane idling at the airport in Albany. It's bound for New Hampshire and, and CNN now is, is, has its uh, camera trained on the tarmac all day and it's this drama. Will Cuomo get out, get on the plane, you know, and ride into history, or will he stay out of the race? And it's to me, it's 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 a, it's an incredible what if moment in, in sort of modern political history. Because um, Cuomo, of course, chooses not to run, and it, it just it it clears the way for Bill Clinton. Um, but there's an incredible what if there if uh, if Cuomo had gotten on that plane. Right. Uh, for for what it's worth, I know somebody who knows Mario Cuomo pretty well, and I occasionally do ask why that was the case. And the answer that I get, it's a little bit different from some of the answers that you hear, is that, among other things, Mario Cuomo was kind of a homebody. Uh, at that point, he had spent one night during his entire marriage away from Matilda. He would do stuff like 
fly to Israel for a speech and insist on being flown back immediately after the speech from Israel. He didn't want to be at conventions. He didn't want to be giving speeches far from home. And he didn't particularly like the backslapping and the glad handing and this kind of subcutaneous chicanery that went on along with politics. He kind of wasn't that guy. I, I And I love that. Um, that is completely correct, and I love the contrast, and I tried to, to get this across in the book a little bit, too. If you think back to the 84 convention we're talking about in San Francisco, where Mario Cuomo you know, was known regionally, but nobody really nationally knew who he was, and suddenly he's the biggest thing in politics because of that speech. Um, I, I, I put this in the book a little bit. You've got Bill Clinton at that point, who's the second-term governor of Arkansas, and he is desperate you know, for attention, desperate to be noticed, and he goes out to San Francisco for the convention, and he works every party. He can get an invitation to. He sees Warren Beatty across the room at a party, and he goes and he finds an excuse to, to go butter him up. And he says, you know, I volunteered for George McGovern in 72, and you were so helpful to us. And he's, he's trying to flatter everybody. He gets mentioned in a David Broder column, which back then was a big deal. And, and he gives this uh, five-minute speech at the convention. He walks off the stage thinking he had a good week. He got a little attention. And then you got Mario Cuomo, like you're saying, flew out that afternoon from Albany, walks on the stage, gives his speech, leaves the delegates in tears and then gets on the plane, flies back home and sleeps in his own bed that night. He didn't seek the attention and he got it for years after that. Bill Clinton chased it and he was in Mario Cuomo's shadow until he finally was able to break out. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Steve Kornacki. His new book is The Red and the Blue, the 1990s and the rise, the birth of political tribalism. We'll be back after this. So we're talking to Steve Kornacki about his book, The Red and the Blue, uh, the 1990s and the birth of political tribalism. Uh, Steve Kornacki, of course, national political correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. So um, let's talk a little bit more about Clinton. Um, you know, we talked about how C-SPAN was kind of Gingrich's uh, version of Trump's Twitter. Well, there's another kind of media that becomes more important uh, suddenly then, and it's it's tabloids, the kind of supermarket tabloids that uh, ordinarily had not been taken seriously prior to that. But that begins to be the kind of place where you could break or plant a, the kind of story that really probably had to lurk in the shadows in the past. So that's kind of what happens to, to Bill Clinton as he starts his march uh, towards the, the 1992 uh, election. Uh, one of the things that dogs him is Troopergate, this notion that, that troopers, state troopers in Arkansas are facilitating his sex life and uh, the emergence of Jennifer Flowers. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, and, and the sort of the, the doors to that kind of thing were, were um were slightly open. They'd been they'd been sort of half opened before the ninety two campaign by Gary Hart a couple years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Gary Hart had been the Democratic frontrunner for eighty eight and then he'd been taken down by the, the Donna Rice scandal that the that the Miami Herald had reported. So that was sort of the the, the sense in politics was that um the press was becoming more um, viewed from one angle, more intrusive than ever. More, you know, the, the boundaries were breaking down in terms of, of, of where they saw the line between personal and and public life. And of course, it was taken as a given that if if you were a candidate for president and it was revealed that you were having an extramarital affair or anything like that, you'd be finished on the spot. If this if this new um, aggressive media ever found you out, you were in deep trouble. And so that was there were when Bill Clinton got in the race in the fall of '91. 
you know, that had happened in the last cycle. There were all sorts of rumors about Bill Clinton from uh, from Arkansas, and he and his wife actually convened a um, a meeting in the fall of '91 with a bunch of um, national press people in in D.C. And it was um, it was to acknowledge that, that the rumors were out there, that everybody in the room knew what the rumors were. Um, they'd all heard different versions of it. And it was basically to acknowledge vaguely that, you know, there had been difficulties in their marriage at some point, but they'd all been, you know, worked out and that there was, you know, there was nothing to see here. That was essentially the message. And they were they were basically telling the press without quite saying that, that you know, hey, Bill had had affairs in the past, but that was in the past and there was there was nothing going on now and there hadn't been anything going on in the recent past. So that was the press was kind of tipped off to that and they were trying to make it so that if the press heard rumors they would they would file it away in that category and not pursue it. But then it was you mentioned the tabloid, it was the supermarket tabloid The Star that in January nineteen ninety two um, reported on Jennifer Flowers, and, and Jennifer Flowers um, had been in Arkansas for um, she'd been an Arkansas State employee for a time. She'd been a, a cabaret singer in Little Rock for a time, um, and and she stepped forward in January '92 to claim she had had a 12-year um, extramarital affair with Bill Clinton, and um, it was the cover of the Star. She held a press conference in New York. She had she said she had tapes. Um, uh, tape-recorded conversations with Bill Clinton from as recently as um, the summer before, and um, and and she, you know, they, they set up a 900 number where people could call. You, you pay five dollars a minute or something, you can hear the entire tape. You know, no no real internet back then, but this was how you got the this was how you got the real juicy stuff. Um, and it was assumed in the moment that this was just going to destroy Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. It had taken down Gary Hart. Now it was going to take down Bill Clinton. And you know what Bill Clinton did? Uh, he did what Gary Hart uh, didn't do. He uh, he kind of leaned into it. Um, he and his wife sought out the the highest rated venue they could find, which was a special edition of 60 Minutes that aired immediately following the 1992 Super Bowl. So it was uh, Washington and Buffalo. Pat Summerall signs off, and then Steve Croft signs on for uh, for 60 Minutes, and there's you know about 50 million people watching, and it's just Steve Croft with Bill and Hillary Clinton, and they're sitting on a couch together, and they're holding hands, and it's it, Clinton basically gives a version of, of what he and his wife had told the press a few months earlier, which is he acknowledges, you know, causing pain, he acknowledges difficulties, um, doesn't come out and, and, and say, you know, explicitly, I had an affair. He leaves a lot to sort of the imagination. He denies the charges from Flowers. He says, those charges are false, or that charge is false, I should say. And Hillary Clinton steps in at one point, too. And she says kind of defiantly, she says, um, you know, I, I'm not um, some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. And that was America's introduction to Hillary Clinton, who was a different kind of um, different kind of political spouse than uh, than the country was used to at that point. And um, and Bill Clinton refuses to get out of the race, um, withstands, you know, just you know, two brutal, brutal weeks that were that were thought at that point to be unsurvivable, um, endures a, subs a subsequent scandal about um, his avoidance of the Vietnam draft um, from 20 years earlier. And um, night of the New Hampshire primary, he doesn't win it, but he is able to um, – he does better than expected. And he's able to. Uh, they get a look at the early returns from New Hampshire about 8:05 at night, and um, he's very close to Paul Songus, who won the primary. And his campaign knew that the late returns were going to favor Songus, so this this close margin was actually going to get a lot wider as the night went on. So they sent him downstairs right away at 8:05 p.m. Um, and he declares himself the comeback kid. Says New Hampshire's given him a new lease on life, and the um, the press 
pretty much goes with it. And, and Bill Clinton, without winning New Hampshire primary, effectively wins the New Hampshire primary in 1992 and, and saves his campaign. So, um, Steve Kornacki, we only have a few minutes left. And uh, so I, I want to just stay with this for a second. And, and there are different ways to look at politics and look at the way that people ascend within politics. But, you know, Bush 41 was probably the last real seniority promotion to president. It's like you've been around, you've had all these other jobs here. Now it's your turn. You get to do this. The Clintons begin a new era where you start up your own operation. You don't get nursed along by the party leadership. You do it yourself. Uh, Obama has done something similar. And God knows Trump has done something even wackier and more and different from that. But it's kind of amazing that the way the, the way the way the Clintons are still around, they announced yesterday that they're going to do a national tour. They're going to be in Wallingford, Connecticut in April <laughs> of 2019, you know, presumably eating up a lot of oxygen that would otherwise be available to some Democrat trying to get ready in 2019 for 2020. I mean, they're really kind of amazing in the sense that they ultimately are pursuing their own stuff. Uh, and, and they've become a machine that's bigger than the party machine. And it's, it's so fascinating, too, because what you're describing, what they sort of were able to create in the early 1990s and, and their, their unwillingness to, to buckle when, you know, the, the, the press and, and, and leaders in the Democratic Party kind of were sending them a message that, hey, you know, this, this stuff isn't survivable. Maybe it's time to, to get out of Dodge. Um, you know, they, they, they endure. They never quit. They survive. They ended up thriving. Um, by 2016, a generation later, when Hillary Clinton's running for president, she actually is kind of running on, on the George H.W. Bush resume, right? I mean, she's, you know, Secretary of State and, and former U.S. Senator and First Lady. And, and Bill Clinton's line at all of the events was there's never been a more experienced candidate for president than, than you have right now. And, of course, the irony that, that Bill Clinton unseated George H.W. Bush as, a, as the governor of a very small southern state um, sort of proved that Bush's experience um, didn't matter for much with voters in 92. A generation later, um, you know, he's, he's pushing his wife on the issue of experience. And again, it, it, it doesn't matter a generation later. Right. Usually when there's a political insurgency, only one side knows it. So in 92, Bush 41 didn't understand that there was an insurgency happening. Clinton and the DLC did. In 2016, I think a similar thing happened. This was a change-oriented election. The Americans wanted an insurgency, and the Clintons didn't understand that, that Hillary Clinton could never be that, but she just didn't symbolize that. We have to stop here. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're gonna, some nice people are going to uh, ask you to support uh, this programming, and the station. And meanwhile, we, we ask you to keep, stay interested in the red and the blue. Steve Kornacki's terrific book about the 1990s and the birth of political tribalism. And when we come back, we decided to explore in our final segment a different kind of tribalism. Uh, we use that word now as an expression of divisiveness, but we decided to look at Native American tribes and, and see whether or not they deserve to have to be compared to Republicans and Democrats or whether they had some better practices. It turns out Spoiler, they did. Steve Kornacki, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, we'll take that break. Please support this show when the nice people come on, uh, as you have in the past. It means a lot if we get contributions during this period. So we've been talking about tribes and tribalism in the way that people kind of sling that word around these days. And I think the way that they sling that word around it kind of means uh, any more than one indigenous groups that kind of don't get along, right? So uh, Sunni Shiite is often depicted as kind of a tribalistic conflict. You can throw in the Kurds there too. Or Hutus and Tutsis would be another example. Tribal conflict. Uh, there's a sense that tribalism equals conflict. But 
is that really true? Is that even a valid way to talk about stuff? And what do we even mean when we use this word? So let's find out what we should mean anyway with Margaret Bruchak, uh, Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Coordinator of Native, Native American and Indigenous Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She also consults with Native nations and museums through her restorative research project on the Wampum Trail. Uh, she is the author of Savage Kin, Indigenous Informants and American Anthropologists. Welcome to our conversation, Margaret. Greetings, Colin. Thanks for having me here. So I, I want to begin with, I don't know, maybe this is kind of a dopey sounding question, but, you know, I mean, in in the world of Native American studies and in the Native American world, past and future, what is a tribe? I mean, it's not really exactly a nation state the way we think of other nation states. So what is it? Well, I always get a little testy when people throw the word out there as being equivalent with conflict, mm -hmm. in part because in North America, so specifically in the United States and Canada, tribal nations, whether they're regarded as Native American tribes or bands or First Nations, tribe is a sort of imperfect word to classify those groups. Mm -hmm. And anthropologically, the term tribe comes out of these antiquated stereotypical notions about human civilization, the idea that somehow tribes are primitive, are loosely organized, and over time perhaps they evolve into clans and bands that over time perhaps evolve into nations and civilizations. And all of that is just bunk. Mm -hmm. So whenever I hear the word tribe equated with conflict, I think it devolves back to that stereotypical notion. Not only is it a great disservice to understanding how Native nations are organized and how they organize themselves, but it assigns modern-day conflicts actually it evokes ancient conflicts in trying to categorize modern-day political conflicts. So yes, there are problems between divergent ethnic and nationalist and quote-unquote tribal groups, but they are not necessarily always savage per se. It brings with it this notion that somehow to behave in a tribal manner is to behave badly. Right. And it also, I think there's the um, built-in implications, as we're both saying, of conflict and then also of primitivism mm -hmm. um, that, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that the tribalism is a pejorative term now is that there's an implication that that's a less sophisticated and modern way to behave. And right, right. And it seems to me that one of the things that you could say about Native American tribalism, particularly in the past, is I assume one of the aspects of tribalism, one of the things that makes a tribe a tribe, is its awareness of the specific environment in which it's living, how the ecology of that environment functions, and, and why it's different to be uh, a Hopi than to be an Iroquois. Well, you live in different places and you treat the land differently, right? Well, and it's far more than just romanticized knowledge of the land. It's a, it's a very complicated system of ecological knowledges, of reciprocal relationships, of the ways in which you negotiate and navigate uh, kinship and relations among human and non-human beings, including all the flora and fauna and resources of the territory, so that there are these understandings over time that enable Native nations to survive in the same ecosystem until, really, until colonial settlers came along, because in many cases, Colonial settlement was predicated on tapping out the resources and controlling the resources for personal or national gain without any sense of how you might develop reciprocal relationships with the people who had lived in that territory for generations. 
So, uh, you know, I think an awful lot of our, our thinking about this, too, is shaped by popular culture. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. You want to just riff on that well, for a second? Yeah, because yeah, what I would say there is that there are these, um, these memories of these conflicts between Native nations and white settlers on the colonial frontier. And in those times, the Indians were always perceived to be both primitive and tribal, and Euro-American settlers were imagined to be carriers of some kind of advanced civilized society. And then that antiquated notion gets grafted right into the present day by looking at conflicts between foreign nations and people of color vis-a-vis Euro-American nations. So, it, it's, so that's why it's sort of a dangerous stereotype to fall into. We should say we're having this conversation on Columbus Day, which I think is kind of paradoxically fitting. Otherwise uh, known as Indigenous Peoples Day. Otherwise known as Indigenous Peoples Day. So, you know, I, w- once again, I'm sort of trying to balance mythos and, and popular culture with what little history I know, and, and I'm doing a very poor job of it. But, uh, but it, it, I think it would be also, I assume it would also be wrong to say, well, uh, you know, it's a, a complete fabrication to suggest that there was internecine warfare among tribes. I mean, oh, of course there was conflict. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, to what degree is that the truth? To what degree is it overblown? Well, it really depends on the era that you're talking about. So if we think about deep time archaeology in the Americas, let's say, there's evidence of conflict, but there's not evidence of full-blown total warfare in deep time. When that evidence starts to appear, it's usually equated with particular moments when certain confederacies are coming into being. So let me explain, for example, both the historical origins and the oral traditions around the founding of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which is a great case in point. In their traditions, the Haudenosaunee, so these are the Six Nations Iroquois, Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, Seneca, and Mohawk, originally five nations, now six nations with Tuscarora. But in their traditions and in history, the five nations created a confederacy as a way to grapple with internecine warfare. Mm -hmm. Depending on which stories you turn to, it was so terrible that the waters were running with blood. It was so terrible there was no safe place to travel. It was so terrible that one never knew who to trust. And in that time, a healer comes among these people, often called the peacemaker, and in the very long and intricate version of the story, it's explained how the peacemaker has to go from nation to nation, from group to group, convincing people that peaceful relations are the best alternative to the current situation. And in each case, each of those nations, people have to decide individually and collectively to physically set aside their weapons, to conceptually set aside their warlike ways of thinking, and to come to a way of being peaceful with one another. But it's not easy. And so that's just one example, but there are multiple examples across the continent where in those times of warfare, there were individuals who acted as peacemakers, who encouraged people to find ways to reckon with what was happening. But this is really key. The only way to reckon with it is first to acknowledge that it's happening. Right. I, I think the most poetic way of thinking about it is the Haudenosaunee's condolence ceremony. Because the condolence ceremony, when it takes place in the aftermath of warfare, requires that the opposing parties first acknowledge that they are broken, Hmm. recognize the trouble, come out of what is both conceptually and physically the woods where their minds are twisted, where their thoughts are unclear, where their 
where everything is turning to hatred and thoughts of blood and to come out of what is often called the thorny bushes. And as they come out of the thorny bushes to the edge of the woods, that's a crucial moment. Because until you cross that liminal space, you are not capable of making peace. If your mind is still in the woods and your body is still stuck in the bushes, you will cause harm to anyone who comes near you. So I, I like to think of that as a really brilliant metaphor and physical activity for stepping out of that space. And it's, it's, a great, um, it's a great description of a capacity we currently lack, right? There is, yeah. there is no modern analog, uh, at least in our domestic relations in, in the United States right now, for what you're describing. I, I really don't believe there is. I mean, I think it's possible, and I think it has been done. One can certainly find multiple examples where it is being attempted in the United Nations and with particular individuals and, you know, it's very, at various points in time leaders in the U.S. and Canada have made these attempts. The problem is that we are now engaged in an era where making peace is equated with forcing peace. So showing weapons in order to terrorize and dominate and force another nation to come to a peaceful agreement. And in terms of indigenous ways of thinking, that's going to be a fragile peace because there is still the threat the deadly threat hanging over one party that has been forcibly subordinated to another. One could argue that much of the trouble that we see in native nations today vis-a-vis -vis the colonial settler nations that surround them is that that threat still hangs over us, that those weapons have never been put aside, that colonization has not yet ended. And so in a situation like that, tribal nations or groups or ethnic groups that are subordinated We'll fight with one another. There's a term for it in anthropology, lateral violence. When you cannot gain your sovereignty or your security vis-a-vis -vis those who are dominating you, you then will turn to attacking the others who are around you. Right, and it seems to me the other thing that uh, happened to, to Native Americans uh, here in this region is, at least from the time of the French and Indian War, they began to get drafted into European conflicts. They become allies of the French or allies uh, of the British in these situations. Absolutely, and even before the French and Indian Wars, let's go back to the Mashantucket-Pequot War. Mm -hmm. The attack on Mashantucket is made possible by the... Um, collusion, so to speak, of the tribal nations that surround the Pequot, but in the aftermath of that devastating attack, they recognize what this has done. And I find it so interesting that the surviving Pequots are then taken in by the Mohegan, the Narragansett, the other native nations around them, and that's how they survive to the present day. So there is always this, um, this effort in the aftermath of war to make new relationships which also equates with making new relations. So in many Native tribes across the continent, there has always been the effort to adopt your former enemies, to turn them into relatives so they are no longer your enemies. So um, uh, as we're moving towards the, the end of our time, Margaret Ruschak, it does seem like there's almost this 
rather than using tribalism as a way of characterizing intractable conflict into which we've drifted at our great peril. Tribalism, it sounds like there's almost a punch list of things you could learn from tribalism to avoid exactly the situation that we're describing as tribalism these days. I mean, we could start with that notion of acknowledging your respective brokenness, right? If you've reached Mm -hmm. a point uh, of internecine warfare, that means that not only is your relationship broken and the other side's broken, but you're broken too, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. So we can start there, and then we can start, we can go from there to what you just talked about, that notion that, you know, at the conclusion of hostilities, you build new relationships. You find ways uh, of, of what, kind of rescuing what's left? Well, not even just rescuing what's left, but forging a new way together. Mm-hmm. So to go back to that condolence ceremony, once you are at the edge of the woods and once you see the people you are in conflict with, you both have to make a choice to step into this open space. And in that open space, if we're talking about wampum diplomacy, you lay down what's called a white mat, which is a large belt of white beads. And in wampum language, and wampum semiotics, white signifies harmony, ease, peacefulness, and possibility. And dark beads sig- signal this conflict, trouble, and potential danger. Both of these things exist in the world, but until they exist in a balance that makes life possible and sustainable, everyone is in danger. So when these formerly warring parties come into that open space and both literally and ritually open their eyes and open their ears and clear their throats, then they can speak of peace. Um, that sounds like a beautiful place in which to end. Exactly. Margaret Bruchak has been our guest, Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Coordinator of Native American and Indigenous Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, also consults with Native Nations and Museums through her restorative research project On the Wampum Trail, author of Savage Kin, Indigenous Informants and American Anthropologists. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And that concludes our show for today. Some nice people are going to come on the air now and ask you to support public radio, support the kind of conversation you just heard. We went from the political tribalism of 2018 to the realities of tribalism, very, very different than you might have supposed, the realities of tribalism uh, among the Native American people who were here before the Europeans got here. If you like stuff like that, listen to these people, and they'll tell you why you should support it. <laughs>